Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to our workshop on sustainable wine packaging. Uh, my name is Toby Webb. I'm co-founder of Sustainable Wine. I'm delighted that you've all decided to join us for a, a few sessions on sustainable packaging and wine. Uh, as we know, it's a very complicated subject. We don't have all the answers, but we are developing better questions. Uh, and there are some solutions on the horizon which are taking shape, at least in certain circumstances. So as I've mentioned in the chat function, uh, there are some resources on the Sustainable Wine website about this, which you can see there under our podcast section, including a great podcast with Joe from BSI, where we talked about some of the, the recent trends. And so we've got three great sessions for you to try and unpack some of the issues around sustainable wine packaging. Our, our first session really looks at kind of what do we mean by sustainable packaging? It's a fast moving area. We'll have a look at the business case. Uh, our second session is really going to say more about how we did gain resources to, to take action on uh, taking the first steps. And then our final session looks at tools and perhaps some predictions on the future. There will, of course, be some overlap, uh, and we'd love to have your contributions. It's a, a group of 23 at the moment. We think that number will go up, but we'd love to have you come in on video and, and take part. Um, nobody has all the answers here, as I've mentioned. So... Uh, I would like to really thank Jo uh, Griffiths and her team at BSI for supporting this and making it happen. Without their financial support, we wouldn't be able to do this and make it free for you all and then free online afterwards as an audio podcast. So uh, thank you very much, Jo. Uh, let's just start out with some introductions. Um, so, uh, Joe, why don't you go first? Tell us a bit about yourself and about BSI, and then we'll turn to our other first speaker, Melissa. Uh, jo, welcome. Hi, Toby. Hi, everyone. It's uh, really good to be here. As uh, Toby said, I'm Joe, and I've got one of those funny accents. Um, but I'm passionate about packaging. Um, I've got 20 years experience in packaging and standards, building good practice into industry. Um, and that's really what BSI does. I also started out with a bachelor's degree in, in packaging technology. Um, so hopefully I'm, I'm qualified on the packaging front. Thank you. And just briefly, Joe, explain a bit about BSI, because it's a well-known name in the UK and in certain areas of ISO and so on, but it's not, not a, a household name. No, and it's it's kind of a, a sleeping giant. We've got um, probably about 5,000 employees around the world. We've got a very strong business in all sort of three main regions of the world. Um, and we're known for lots of different things, but essentially we've started out as the national standards body in the UK. So we do a lot of work um, on really harmonising good practice, um, and, and creating standards for, for the world to use. And, and probably about 95% of the work we do actually goes into ISO. So we're really a global standards organization. Um, but we've also got um, a number of different practices in, in um, uh, consultancy and training, um, lots of things. We, we, a bit like the app store, you know, if, if something you need to do, BSI's probably got a, a, a division that will do that for you. <laughs> And you're a non-profit entity with um, with a kind of science connection as well, with FIRA as well. Just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we've got the role of charter mandate, which means that 
Um, we are non-profit distributing. We invest uh, all the cash back straight into, into BSI and evolving um, us as a business. Um, and yes, we partner with FERA, the Food and Environment Research Agency. Um, I might have got the A bit wrong, um, but they really do support us on the science side of things. We, uh, we rely on their scientific expertise to, to validate a lot of the work we do. Thanks very much. Uh, Joe's very, very modest viewers, but BSI is one of those very rigorous British institutions that helps the world go round. Um, if only you'd been able to sort out the plugs and sockets thing, Joe, that would be great. <laughs> it's a good example of co where coordination is needed, but they're, they're an extremely rigorous organisation that's very well respected around the world. Melissa, thank you for joining us too. Um, you're, you're an MW, um, kudos, only 400 of you in the world. Um, and, and tell us a bit about what you do and about communal brands. Sure. Um, thank you, uh, Toby, and thank you everyone for, for joining this important session. Um, yeah, so I so Communal Brands is uh, primarily an import distribution business. I'm based in New York City. Um, I um, actually started the business curating producers that were primarily focused on um, farming in an environmentally responsible way. But through my um, research and just my life, um, had started to really appreciate the importance of the packaging to the equation. Um, for my MW research paper, I actually uh, made a decision to focus on uh, the packaging aspect in the wine industry specifically. Um, and, you know, without diving too much into the detail of the paper, the idea was to first understand uh, what uh, the industry, specifically the retail tier in New York City, knew about the environmental impact of packaging. And then secondly, if they did know more, would that actually impact their purchasing decisions? So it was a really um, interesting and eye-opening uh, journey. Um, and um, I can say that for myself, um, you know, I, even prior to the research that I did and, and appreciating the importance of the packaging, um, you know, I focus probably more than I should on, on bag and box as a format. Um, uh, it's a very large part of my rather small portfolio, but um, I've sort of made a decision that if I'm going to do something, I may as well go with the packaging format that has the lowest carbon footprint and tackle all of the challenges that that has associated with it. So that's that's me and my my background. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, we'll come on to that. Lots of innovation taking place in bag in box and there's some really good looking packaging out there now it actually looks like something you really want to have on your kitchen counter when you see some of the better examples so we'll, we'll look forward to unpacking that no pun intended um joe um start us off perhaps with a bit of an overview i mean the podcast we did a few months ago was very interesting because i think we, we talked about some of, the, some of the kind of global trends and drivers for sustainable packaging. Obviously, the US um, is a different market from, from Europe, but we're also talking about the Americas here. So I'm not asking you to give us a complete global rundown, Joe, but perhaps some of the, the, the drivers that you see taking place here. And then perhaps we can turn to Melissa for more of a US perspective on, on what's making this happen. What's, what's driving us all to be here today? Joe? Well, I think... Um packaging sustainability it's 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 a funny thing because it's there's no silver bullet there's no uh, you know there's no sustainable packaging you can't sort of say oh that's the sustainable packaging because it's it's going to mean different things in different geographies it's going to mean different things for different supply chains and different retail markets 
Um, and if we boil down to it, packaging is used to, to transport goods around. So, um, you know, it's, it's protect, preserve, contain, and inform. If it does those four things, that's a piece of packaging. That's an excellent piece of packaging. Um, and I think if we boil down to making packaging more sustainable in, in the sense that it's using resources better, um, then we can refer to the waste hierarchy. So uh, we've got perhaps the reduce, reuse, recycle. Now, a lot of people say, well, refuse is... Um, is, is, is at the front there actually it's refusing um you know uh, uh, whatever it is that we're trying to improve on um but people kind of go straight to recycle and go well my, my package is recyclable so I'm, I'm good you know i don't need to do anything um but it's it's proven that that the reduction step and, and the, some of the reuse systems in place are far more effective than just simply you know saying that that's that's recyclable that's glass that's infinitely recyclable that's okay um, you know, if you can also reduce that that weight, then that's going to make a, a massive difference. Just you know, completely across the entire supply chain, not just in the inherent, um, you know, uh, um, uh, energy and, and resources that it takes to produce the container in the first place, but you know, all along the supply chain, particularly if you're shipping. Um, you know, I particularly love Australian wines. I love New World wines. So all of that wine is coming over to Britain for me to drink and, and you know I want to know that I'm not I'm in that it's been as, as, as efficient as possible in the supply chain um, so if we can reduce the weight of container for example if we can play around with the shape of it a little bit you know people are making decisions now based on on the environmental credentials of, 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 of a product um, and I think wine is has kind of got a little bit of a halo around it because it's kind of oh it's such a treat you know you, the top of the cork or the um, the, the cork, uh, sorry, the capsule um, opening. It's 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 in a different place, I suppose, to many sort of more commoditized food products. But I, I think, you know, there is definite strides now that consumers are making, you know, decisions based on perhaps some of the other labelling that that is around, by like organic or sulfite-free, and, and some of those things. So you know, the kind of packaging credentials, I think, are going to be going to be next. And and lots of other industries have already made huge strides. Um, but in incremental steps that, you know, that there's been reductions uh, in packaging and packaging is actually pretty good at doing this. You know, it's been doing it very quietly for a number of years. Um, you know, people probably don't appreciate the glasses or usually about 30% recycled in the first place. That steel, aluminium, they're probably about 25% recycled. Corrugated board can be anything from probably industry standard 30% all the way up to 90 or 100% recycled. And, and it doesn't necessarily shout about it because um, packaging's not there to shout, it's just there to support the product and, and support the, the, the consumption of the product. Um, one of the examples I often use um, to, to sort of play around with perhaps say, uh, sorry, <laughs> shape and size of pack formats is your canned tomatoes. So pretty, um, you know, store cupboard staple. Um, they come in two or three piece cans and, you know, that's what you're looking for in the supermarket is that can. You need your can opener or you've got the easy open end. Um, but it's not particularly prevalent in the UK. And I, it'd be interesting to hear if anyone has seen it anywhere else in the world. But you can now get tomatoes in tetra packs, tetra packs, multi-layer laminate packs, bricks, tetra bricks, other multi-layer multi laminate pack manufacturers are available. You can more than double the amount of tomatoes on a pallet by switching to that pack format. Now, of course, there's huge implications in changing pack format like that. It's it's not just a case of, you know, one day finish with a can, start the next day with a different pack format. 
But I do think, you know, it's, it's worth sort of having a bit of play around with, with what's going on in other industries and see if it will work, if it can translate, if it can move across um, into an industry as dynamic and, and, um, and youthful in some respects as, as some of the wine producers. And I know there's some obviously some very established wine producers, but I think there's no, there's no time limit on creativity. And do you see glass as something which has perhaps been under-focused on by consumers for its impact? And do you see that rising up the agenda in terms of you know, the carbon footprint? I think so. I think some of the wine writers are starting to pick up on it now, aren't they? And, and sort of assessing the, the weight of the, the, the container with the wine in it and, and sort of saying, is, is this really necessary? Is this, is this absolutely necessary? Yes, it adds to the sense of occasion, if you like, with the wine. It adds to... Um, you know that sense of of you getting you know a bang for your buck if you if you like, um, but the the implications are so significant. I think the more that um, we start to talk, you know, in quite a public forum about you know the impacts of glass, then you know that's likely to become on to come onto the agendas of many people. Um, and I think some retailers will probably, uh, actually there's a couple of retailers in the UK that have picked up on it already that have got standards for what they'll accept as glass weights um, for their own brand wines. Yes, I see that System Bellage, the Swedish monopoly, is I think saying soon, if not now, 420 grams is the maximum bottle weight they'll carry, which is quite significant. Um, Melissa, what, what does that mean for, for producers and others? Um, uh, what's the level of, of interest and change you're seeing at the moment on, on your side of the pond? Well, um, I would say that, um, you know, looking statistically at what's being sold and the fact that in the U.S. it's still predominantly glass. I think the recent statistic that I looked at was about 85 percent glass. Um, I would say that we're still pretty staunchly committed to that format. I also want to point out that I think that um, education really is at the forefront of this. I think that there absolutely is um, the idea of tradition, um, the occasion, um, Joe, as you point out, that people um, appreciate when they're purchasing a bottle of wine and they want the glass and the cork. But I think that there's also just not enough awareness of the negative impacts of glass. People believe, and I'm speaking generally because it's, you know, really the only way you can speak in this context, my understanding of what most people understand is the recyclability of glass redeems it. And there isn't that extra layer of realizing, well, first of all, unfortunately, the recycling system in the US is terribly, terribly broken and could require a whole other um, agenda for us to discuss. But putting that to the side, even if everything that were supposed to be recycled were actually recycled in this country, the impact um, is, is, is actually not as great as one would think. So there is a, a massive in, um, misunderstanding when it comes to that. I will also say that despite the fact that uh, it seems that the majority of consumers talk about being environmentally responsible and wanting to make decisions, their purchasing decisions based on the environmental credentials of a particular product, when it means actually having to shift behavior uh, in a particular way, sometimes they get a little bit uncomfortable and you really see that in, 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 in buying patterns um, and that's pretty pervasive. So here uh, it is a glass culture for sure. 
Uh, I think the first step in terms of moving away from that would be absolutely education and giving people a more holistic understanding of the issues and what it is that they should be paying attention to when they're making decisions based on environmental impact. And then I think it also is uh, education around the fact that it doesn't have to be such a big shift in behavior, you know, it, um, whether it's a lighter bottle or an alternative to a bottle, it's, um, I think on many levels, uh, the industry endorsing the positivity of some of these formats, because certainly at a consumer level in the US, without a very um, sophisticated understanding of you know, what consumers should and shouldn't be buying when it comes to wine, they could be just as uh, swayed if the industry were endorsing alternatives uh, that were more environmentally friendly versus, you know, just having to come up with that on their own. A lot of times people are shy to take a step to buy an alternative package because the industry itself is so staunchly committed to glass. So that's that's what I'm seeing. So is the, the focus on climate change really is an opportunity for, um, for brands and others to engage consumers through alternative and innovative packaging, surely. Um. Yes, yes. And, you know, given, given that the US, I mean, we have to call out the elephant in the room. I mean, we are a big emitter of, car of carbon, carbon, you know, carbon emissions. We are really, um, I guess, I think we are number two in the world in terms of, um, you know, being responsible for the problem. So uh, anything that we can do, we need to do. Um, we're also a lot less mandated than other uh, parts of the world. And so it really does come down to individual choice and having an impact. Um, and yes, the extent to which we can innovate to sway people in the appropriate direction, it's that's the way forward. So what are the formats at the moment and their overall footprints? I mean, Obviously, glass is the biggest and has the biggest footprint. But just so we're clear on what the others are, just maybe just run through a, a couple of well, the, the list as you see them. And then, Joe, I'll ask if you have anything to add to that. Sure, sure. So, well, my research, my research specifically focused on the packaging types that were more or less most pervasive in the market or that people were you know, most aware of at some point in time. So glass bottles, aluminum cans, um, bag and box, Tetra Pak. And um, the one and a half liter pouches that are starting to, uh, I think, gain gain more and more traction. Um, from a carbon footprint standpoint, um, glass is is far and away um, the, the the largest um, uh, from an emission standpoint. Second to that, um, which was very interesting because people don't always know this, is actually the aluminum can, um, and a lot of that is attributable to the single serve or close to single serve format. Um, at least this is uh, what my research had shown. Um, and uh, then, you know, doing doing pre uh, PET bottle, excuse me, we also focused on that. It is a very small uh, portion of the US market um, and it's actually a little bit less than aluminum cans, um, but that's another thing that the study looked at. And then if you're looking at Tetra Pak, uh, three liter specifically bag and box, um, excuse me, the one liter Tetra Pak, and one and a half liter pouches, they're all pretty good and pretty low. Um, the three liter bag and box is the lowest, but when you're getting down to you know that level, um, it's really the lowest because it's four bottles of wine in one unit of packaging. So there's a real efficiency there and that's where it's gaining some extra points that maybe the other uh, formats don't have. But from a weight um, and efficiency perspective, you know those, those three are, are, are pretty strong. Um, and um, my research, just so that 
um, I'm transparent, it um, did rely heavily on others' studies. Um, and I looked a lot at studies that the Nordic markets had done because they're really uh, leaders when it comes to knowledge about this, but also talking the talk and walking the walk. So, Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I've seen some pictures in Alco stores in Finland of some really attractive alternative packaging that uh, really kind of does a bit of myth busting, I think. Joe, anything you'd like to add on this point of the different formats and the footprint, just so we're kind of clear before we move forward? I think, um, I, well, Melissa's covered pretty much all of them. There was there was one I, I thought, oh, plastic. You don't tend to see plastic, particularly in, in sort of retail um, outlets. And I think at the moment, you know, there's a significant image problem with plastic. And I think, you know, we'd not appreciate, um, you know, the, the sort of... Um, the blue planet effect um but I, i'll always sort of defend uh plastic a little bit because it's 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 got a problem because it's really good at what it does it, it's um it's particularly efficient you know it's not a particularly difficult material to, to manufacture once once you've got the um once you've got the raw material um it can be recycled effectively a couple of times um it's it's the the waste infrastructure that needs a lot of support and, and that's not just for plastic you know melissa mentioned the the um, the waste management in the US, well, you know, it's not great in, in the UK either. And I think, you know, we can look at the Scandinavian countries and perhaps go, okay, so how did they get to that point where they've got that really efficient, normal, normalised uh, deposit return system? Because I think, um, you know, there was a big move in the industry to go from court closures to screw cap. But, you know, I, I remember this being a sort of an uproar sort of 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and, it changes got to, to normalize before you can sort of really embed it in a culture and i think the retailers have got a huge opportunity to, to do that to normalize the appearance of different pack formats and kind of boost the the, the availability of, of bag in box for example because there's a little bit of a taboo in the uk particularly about buying bag in box or the standard pouch type wine you know it's it's not sort of an elite um sort of container um but i do think you know whether whether we're looking at um, conventional retail or, or online retailers or, or a, a combination, there's a huge opportunity to play around with pack formats and sort of, sort of um, have a think about the pack format in, in context of, of how it's reaching the consumer. Because if it's, as, as a consumer, I'm, I'm quite happy to receive a different pack format if you come through the letterbox. I'm quite happy to sort of order something and, and I'm ordering it online because I want bulk, not <laughs> not, not a single bottle. So I'm quite happy to sort of think about that and go, yeah, actually, that there's benefits to me to receiving, um, you know, a, a product, whatever it might be, not just wine, in a different pack format. Um, but it's it's those innovative retail, retailers or innovative brand owners that are going to um, be playful and, and creative with with some of the pack formats and, and really um, push the branding, push the, the the sort of experiential side of wine. I think once it's at home. Um, that's outside of the conventional wine bottle, and I think I, I've been thinking about that a lot. That you know, there's, you know, we're after the experience things. If we, we're now in a culture that values experience over things, then that's great. So let's let's think about the experience of wine at home. Let's have a have a wine ritual based around a carafe, the decanter, the whatever it might be, um, that doesn't rely on on, on the on the glass bottle. I think you know, there's there's a lot of playfulness that we can introduce to, to wine. Um, and, and just make people think slightly differently about it. Thank you. Um, Melissa, I mean, we talk a lot about the opportunity here because the, the regulatory agenda is 
far behind, but it, it will come to pass at some point that you think standards will be raised and, and, and footprints have to be lowered given climate change. So there does seem this great opportunity to innovate here. And you, know, you can see that's happened in the Scandinavian market simply because they, they pushed the bar down and said, right, here's the, here's the, uh, here's the way it's going to work. Now go innovate. And that has happened. Do you see any signs of any, I mean, obviously not in, in government circles, but in states, authorities or in big brands who are, who are starting to kind of create that what you might call forced innovation culture, where they say X is no longer acceptable. So here's now the boundaries in which we're operating. Let's go and innovate. Is that happening anywhere yet, Melissa? No. <laughs> um, I mean, I, it really is not. But what's interesting is, and but we're speaking exclusively about the wine industry, and it's not happening within the wine industry at all. But I would say that it is happening in other industries. And it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've looked a lot at, um, you know, if you look at, the first example that comes to my mind is a very large retailer like Walmart, for example. You know, they have been, um, you know, for all their faults, and we can go down a number of different paths there, from a sustainability standpoint, they really have taken an initiative to um, ensure that they're following certain standards and guidelines. And because of their buying power, they're actually able to insist that only certain things come through that meet their standards the fragmentation that exists in the U.S. wine industry makes it very, very challenging. Um, as most people on the call may or may not be aware of, you know, between the three-tier system, which already um, complicates how, you know, wine gets distributed throughout the U.S., each different state has its own laws. It's like a different country. And with respect to how uh, at the retail level wine can be purchased and handled, it becomes quite challenging actually to, um, I guess, insist that certain practices be in play. So unfortunately, I think it is, of course, we could rely on certain large retail chains that are permitted to exist in the US that sell wine products and have them set certain standards. But to get to a level of like, you know, the Swedish monopoly of the system Bolgate, it's literally it would be just um, I mean, it's I don't want to say it's impossible because nothing's impossible, but um, it would be extremely challenging. And I'm not sure that that's even the because it's the US and just the whole spirit of how we operate and how people don't like to be told what to do. I think that, um, you know, we're much better off educating and actually uh, inspiring through innovation so that people are making the decision to switch to alternative formats that have a, a you know a better a better impact on the environment and that they're doing that voluntarily and they're doing it for the right reasons because they they have a an understanding of what the issues are and they understand individually the impact that they can have um, of course it's never going to encompass everybody but given that the U.S. is also at the moment you know the largest wine consumer um, in the world it's the large largest wine consuming country in the world it's a great place to be focusing on because impact can be had um, it, you know it just I think requires some like I said more education and more innovation but forcing people it just gets super super tricky even just from a from a legal standpoint unfortunately. How about the, how about the startup scene are there half a dozen really cool uh, alternative packaging companies that are trying to make um, wine trendy. I mean, we see a lot of this in, in Europe. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. the impact is, is is currently limited, but there's this whole shift towards making alternative packaging aspirational. How, well, is, how is the scene evolving there? 
it's it's evolving, and I will say that I am at the forefront of it with my you know small little import distribution business. I am personally, and I have been focused on it for a very long time, and I am paying co close attention to it. Uh, there are certain markets in the U.S. that are more. Um, I guess, uh, evolved than others. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, a statistic that most people don't know, Colorado is the largest uh, wine box uh, consuming state in the US. Um, so if you're gonna focus in certain areas that might be uh, one to focus on, they're just a bit more open-minded supposedly in Colorado about uh, alternative packaging. But um, yes, it's happening. That said, it's and, and, and it's happening actually um, I mean, it's kind of inspiring when you see it, you know, if you go to a wine store in like a hipster, you know, neighborhood in Brooklyn, it's everywhere. But unfortunately, it's still a very small segment of the market. And the irony, I think, you know, if we look at this um, big picture, there really are two wine industries. And I remember, you know, Jancis Robinson referring to this uh, at a talk that she participated on that was um, hosted by the Porto Protocol about a month ago. You know, there's the, the fine wine segment, which really does command glass and cork, but which is a very small, very small segment of the industry. And then there's everything else, which, you know, can really lend itself to a lot of creativity. There, there really shouldn't be as many rules as they are, but I do think that it comes down to people that are consuming at that level, understanding that it's like actually box wine or whatever you want to be, you know, using, whether it's Tetra Pak or a one and a half liter pouch, that it's not necessarily, you know, cheap and nasty, that it actually can be of good quality and that there are all these other benefits, but they're just, we're just, we're definitely not there. And yes, little by little, we're planting seeds that hopefully will grow, but we still have, a, we still have a long way to go. And one thing that I definitely uncovered from my research, but also from my own personal experience, it does require endorsement, I think, at a, at a higher level, at a producer level, at a, qu a quality producer level. Somebody, you know, a couple of people getting out there and saying, you know what, it's okay if it's not in glass, you know, you're not doing something wrong at all. Uh, and because, you know, if all that's available is, poor, you know, poor quality wine in those formats, or maybe not necessarily at the level that there's an expectation that people have in glass, then it ends up, you know, it's a vicious cycle, really, you can't get what you want. So you're going to keep buying glass. So, you know, it's happening, but little by little. That's all I can say. Thanks, Joe. What, what would you like to add to this? What's interesting about uh, Colorado, actually, um, I, I, that was one of the points I was thinking about earlier, was how much data do retailers and brand owners have about the channels, the regions, the geographies that their, their products sell to? Presumably they, they sort of know roughly where this stuff goes and, and um, therefore are we sharing the, the, the type of information that you've got about, you know, perhaps where um, uh, different... Um, cross-sections of society are, are, are sort of picking up on, on innovative pack formats and I think you know you touched on quite a lot there about um, it being aspirational to have a different pack format you know to have kind of celebrity endorsement if you like of um, of, of, a, of an alternate uh, material or shape or size you know we're all so welded to this uh, round glass bottle um, and I think gosh you know what if, what if we just make them a bit squarer that would make things a bit more efficient what if we 
uh, I noticed one of the comments in the, in the, in the chat as well about using bulk uh, and filling locally and and you know there's there's so many options i mean how i, I suppose it's touching on one of the sessions later isn't it but you know I, I, you mentioned the fragmented industry i mean how, do you think there's a mechanism that we can share this information is there is there a way that we can sort of you know learn from each other at the moment, I, I don't think that there is, but I think that that is absolutely on the table as a solution. Mm. I think there really needs to be um, much more consolidation across the supply chain with respect to sharing ideas, sharing information, uh, particularly around issues like these, where it does require a heretical shift in thinking. Mm. Um, and people are, uh, the status quo isn't doesn't feel broken to people, and that's why there isn't an impetus to change. But I think, really, I mean, we, we're all very aware of the grave state of the union with respect to the planet, and um, I think that that there needs to be more of a call to action because we really can have an impact if and having a forum where we can all share ideas and understand better how we can first quantify what that impact could be and all be on the same page, setting some goals and taking some yeah. action. Personally, I, I don't see it being achieved at the scale that it needs to be achieved to have an impact without that happening. Yeah, I, I asked a friend of mine who's um, head of environment for one of the world's largest retailers about where this was on her agenda. And she said, quite a long way down compared to Brazilian soy and palm oil and, and all the other issues I'm dealing with. But it's on the agenda and we will get there. The question is when, because that, that can also change the game. And Chances made a very good point about there being two industries. You know, there's a certain price point and then there's another, you know, and it depends where you are. I don't know what the average bottle of wine sells for in the US. In the UK, it's about six pounds. And that's, you know, it can be some 95% of the market in that range. So, you know, a huge lever of change is there for, for the cheaper um, cheaper options if the, the drivers can be there both culturally and, of course, politically so, so complex stuff and we don't have all the answers but that's a really interesting overview of the landscape um, maxim has a couple of questions uh, maxim why don't we bring you in to ask them if you don't mind we can be a bit social uh, are you there why don't you come in and ask your questions to the panel sure um my uh, oh my, tell us who you work for as well please if you don't mind um sure um I've been a wine importer since 2014. I have a wine import company in Western Canada called Vino Vino. We are exclusively focused on natural, organic, and biodynamic wines. And in July, we are launching a platform called Vante that's focused on such priorities as what we're talking about. Um, we have three priorities. One of them is to organize the world's wine information. Two is to connect wine producers with wine buyers. And three is to turn every vineyard into a carbon sink. Um, a lot of the vineyards have the opportunity to, to be carbon neutral or cover carbon negative. So that's one of our goals. So we're looking at a number of different ways to decarbonize the supply chain. As part of this, the, the question that they have in terms of kind of some of the research we're doing to, to make it more innovative is, has any research been done to evaluate what is the impact of packaging in, in Tetra Pak or packaging in, in plastic because those are derived from hydrocarbon molecules vis-a-vis -vis the cost of packaging in, in, in renewable materials like glass and the carbon footprint of bringing that product from uh, its origin to its destination. So that was one of the questions they had. Then the other one was like, is there a different way to package wine in such a way that you're bringing bulk, like you're bringing 
half a ton, a ton, two tons, and you're packaging local facilities. So essentially, you you almost like have facilities that become bottling facilities as a service. Um, so you choose the DM one, two, three, five, or whatever you, you want to choose. You choose your packaging, you choose your labeling, but you do want to do a local market to, to reduce the carbon footprint on supply chain. Thank you. I mean, there is a question that says, can we call glass renewable given that the power generated uh, to make the glass does not come yeah. from renewable base load? You know, we wish it did, but it doesn't, you know, so if you factor in the coal or the, you know, whatever, perhaps in France with nuclear, maybe, <laughs> depending on your point of view. But Joe, uh, what do you think? Some great points raised by Maxim. Yeah, and I, I think definitely there are um, wine, um, wine that's uh, shipped in, 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 you know, shipping containers and bottled locally. I know that happens. Um, I, I think, I don't know if this is true, this is my perspective, but I think that there's a, a preference for bottled, for wine bottled at source. So, you know, if, you know the, in the supermarket, you might make the decision between, oh, this is bottled in the UK, this is bottled in France. This is probably, and, you know, there's, there's absolutely no reason to, to mm -hmm. say that. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of perhaps a, a vertical integration um, but I think, you know, that's I, I, hopefully one of the directions that wine can go in, particularly, like I said, when you're shipping wine from Australia or New Zealand yeah. to the UK, you know, please send it in bulk and we'll bottle it. Please do that. Or, or when I say bottle, I mean, you know, put in any kind of, of pack format. Um, and I think, you know, the same um, for sort of refillable glass bottles. I, I wonder if um, there's, there's room for that as well. But, um, yeah, I think just with those huge distances involved, I think yeah. it's a missed opportunity. Um, it, on the hydrocarbon side, no idea. I don't know if Melissa has got any suggestions. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I understood the question about the carbon piece of your... From, yeah. from the hydrocarbon perspective, what I'm wondering is like, I mean, um, we are based in, in Alberta and Alberta is one of the capitals like Texas of hydrocarbons. So I'm very familiar with this aspect plastic is made out of hydrocarbons. You, you have um, uh, C3, C4, C5 molecules that you essentially turn into plastic. What is the impact of packaging wine into hydrocarbon? So there's a cost, there's, it, essentially it's foreign gas that you use to, to, pack, to produce the plastics into pallets and then extrude them versus packaging the wine in glass. Let's say that you're bringing the wine from Italy to um, New York and calculating the carbon footprint of because essentially for the most part if you bring it from Livorno to New York it's all ship so it's fairly low carbon footprint versus using the last mile and tracking what is the impact of the carbon footprint what is the comparison between a hard carbon footprint and what is the the cost of packaging in plastic and still bring it on a ship or or something like that what is the difference if there's a difference so are we talking life cycle analysis mm -hmm. yeah I'm sure there's information out there there is definitely information out there. I, um, I, I'm. We'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. Seriously, I okay. mean, it's a great, it's a great question. But this speaks to the complexity of the issue, <laughs> right? There are all of these things. Um, ultimately, yeah. I mean, it's it's a good one. We'll have to. Okay. Ask. I, I imagine there'd be a sort of it depends factor here, isn't there? You know, if is there recycled PET? Was there renewable energy involved? Yeah, there are lots and lots of questions there which could dictate the, the ultimate LCA. Um, but it, but a great point to think about. Um, Nicoletta Dikova, you, you also had a really interesting question here. Can I bring you in to join us? Nicoletta, are you there? 
sorry, yeah. Here, here I am, yes. Uh, sorry, my English, perhaps it's not so so clear. Uh, I hope it's I hope it's clear what I meant uh, with with my question about introducing a model of uh, reusable glass bottles meant uh, for local consumption. For, so for the domestic market. So your, your question is how do we make that popular among? Producers yes. Among yes. How how this how this model how this way of working could be could become more could be made more popular among consumers yeah, among, among really, producers i'm sorry uh, there is a little bit of confusion around me with the kids sorry it's, it's okay I, I mean in fact that applies to both producers and consumers doesn't it i mean um i have another business called innovation yes. forum which is which is how i know joe actually we do a lot of work on plastics um and uh, last year um we had or well, last time we did a physical conference we had the head of behavioral science for Unilever come uh, and he is a behavioral psychologist and he turned up at the conference and he said, I don't know anything about plastic, but I know a little bit about people. And it strikes me the one thing you have to do is to make people value plastic. And if you can do that, you can solve your packaging problem. And he said that, and I saw sort of 200 companies in the room sit there looking puzzled. And I thought that's either absolute genius or <laughs> a bit trite um but it ended up being the only thing the conference really discussed as a big theme for about two days after that so it's that valuation of your packaging as something useful both by the producer to get it back and by the consumer as an aspirational thing to take it back and we you know, we've seen this in germany over you know decades you know i went to germany recently and i didn't see a i didn't see anything other than recyclable glass the whole time i was there now that has challenges as we know but people are valuing the, the packaging resource in some countries um what are your thoughts on this joe i think i think you're absolutely right and um you know if we can if we can have people appreciate that 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 piece of plastic even though it's very light even though it's very flimsy even though it's it's you know throwawayable uh don't know if that's a word um that it's it's done a fabulous job in getting whatever it is that was inside it to to the consumer and i think if we could if we could bottle it <laughs> another pun um and kind of you know share the share the the value that 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 has i mean outside of, of wine you know you look at the broader sense of broader topic of food waste packaging is absolutely vital in, in minimizing food waste and there comes a point where you can't lightweight a, a container anymore or you'll start to ruin the stuff inside and packaging only exists because of the stuff inside so let's not make it unfunctional let's value it let's you know if we could collect all the plastic in the world melt it down and make new things out of it wouldn't that be amazing that's called the circular economy we can introduce circular economy thinking into our organizations it's there's, there's actually a, a good practice standard for it. It's BS 8001, fabulous document. It's global good practice on, on how to behave in, a, you know, in, in new product development, existing product development, um, any kind of, of product um, uh, evolution. And, and it, it gives you sort of six pillars of, of how to be circular in your thinking. Um, and, 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 and as an organization, some of, them, some of those things are practical. It's embedding them in your organization. Other things are redesigning or reimagining what the product looks like. Um, and it's, it's a powerful tool. Um, and I think, you know, people focus on packaging. Consumers focus on packaging when it's empty and they've got to deal with it. Because, you know, it's either going to go in the recycling, it's going to go in the bin. The bin's full already because 
the collection, collection didn't come this week or, or whatever it might be, it's, it's a problem. Um, whereas if you can remove that problem from people's lives, if you can make people feel better about throwing, you know, cartons and boxes and bottles and things into a receptacle that's actually going to result in them being um, completely transformed into new pieces of packaging or other items, other products, that's, that's, you know, that's capturing people's imagination, that's capturing people's enthusiasm. Um, and I, I genuinely believe people are, you know, want to do the right thing. And I, I don't think I'm unique in that. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely about the people. It's absolutely about uh, convincing and educating and, and really persuading people um, that the system's the right thing to do. As with refillable glass bottles, I don't know if that's legal in some countries for, for wine. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there are challenges, of course, with reusing or refilling anything mm. with contamination and so on. I mean, we, I mean, we've seen some initiatives in the UK with the borough wines, you know, selling wine in bottle and you bring the bottle back and it's all part of the ritual and the story. But it's all terribly sweet for middle class people who live around there. Um, Melissa, what do you think about this? Is, is reusable glass um, without being melted down, is that ever going to be a sustainable solution or just a kind of cherry on the top? Well, I think it's going to be touched on in some of the later uh, discussions, uh, the workshops this afternoon, because I think both of those businesses are, are heavily focused on the idea of, you know, create of relooping that glass. Um, I think from uh, the, the practical barriers that come into play are a few. One is it does get complicated depending on the, the wine, the origin of the wine. Um, there are certain, you know, mandates for appellation that you need to bottle at the source, that you need to um, be in a certain kind of bottle. So the idea of moving towards a universal bottle um, to really have, have scale is would be uh, quite a challenge, a, a, an endeavor, a big endeavor. Um, if we're looking at um, local producers being more open to, you know, relooping their glass and having a system for that, it's absolutely um, happening. Um, it's in its infancy, but it does, as you pointed out, um, Toby, it has its challenges. First of all, there's a quality control challenge, right? So app, they really need to be going back to the producer if they want to be refilled um, in the most uh, secure way. Um, and that has its challenges too. Do you only, if you live in New York or Michigan, do you only want to drink Michigan wine? Probably not. So the impact that you could have is an impact, but it's not as great as some of the other solutions. So when you start to peel away at the layers of the onion, all of these things are possible, but we always, I think, need to take it back to what's possible the soonest, right? If we want to have the most immediate impact, you know, where are there the fewest, um, I guess, regulatory and legal barriers to whatever it is that's on our agenda? And um, where are we going to have the impact that's the greatest. So this, you know, the size of the impact and the uh, time timeline to be able to start to implement some of these solutions. So that's why I say I love the idea of relooping, um, but it's it's complicated. Um, I do want to point out. Um, I feel like this is an appropriate forum. I I am I touched on something very interesting recently. Um, because I am such a proponent of bag and box, not that because it's the perfect solution, but because I think I can have the, the, the greatest immediate impact implementing it. But everybody always has a bug about the bag, right? Because, you know, it's essentially 75% recyclable because of the cardboard aspect, but the bag and the tap, people are like, oh, you know, and I get it. it it's not great. Um, but I've recently hooked up with uh, an organization here in the US called TerraCycle. Um, and their primary function is to figure out how to 
you know, things that are not in the normal recycling loop, how to collect those um, goods and turn them in, into something else. So I have a call next week with someone and I don't know how I'm going to do this, but the extent to which all of the bags that at least I can be responsible for can somehow be taken back and converted into park benches, which is a, what I'm told they could be done, can be done. Um, it's going to be one of my, one of my latest endeavors. I think that, you know, identify the problem, try to come up with some kind of a solution and little by little by little, you know, we're, we're getting there. So anyway. Well, the ultimate solution, as far as we know at the moment is probably like bargain box with a recyclable inner and tap available on subscription with an incentive to send back. I mean, and of course, TerraCycle runs the loop um, uh, pilots with lots of brands, whereby you're getting stuff delivered in aluminium um, and you refill it and then you drop them off and they go back. And that's being used by lots of retailers as pilots at the moment. So I commend uh, Luke to you. And by the way, Melissa, the, the Bib Wine Company in the UK, they claim to have got a recyclable inner and tap now. So here's the thing, they, it's tricky, right? I mean, I've been having lots of chats with people because it's wine, it's very, very, very hard to um, have something certainly that's you know biodegradable or anything like that. Um, the, the bag and tap is recyclable in other parts of the world. It's flexible plastic that gets complicated. The Germany's pretty good about it. The Nordics are pretty good about it. So it, but this gets back to that regulatory hurdle, right? I mean, we're not there in the US and we're not getting there anytime soon. Certainly not when it's, you know, um, governed by municipalities, right? So you really get fragmented. So best to just figure out what, what you're going to do with it in the best way possible, knowing that we're probably a long way off from being recycled. But yes, it's good to know that it's happening. Just not here. <laughs> not for a while. Yeah, you're not alone. The UK has about 400 different municipal recycling schemes. I mean, Joe would know more about it than I do. But that, that coordination is uh, is key. And we have a few more minutes. Does anyone have a, a further question? Um, Joe, Joe, what do you think about that proposition? You know, the ultimate sustainable wine packaging as we know it at the moment being recyclable bag in box goes back to Melissa or whoever, and it's on a subscription, so there's an incentive. Is that is that the best we've got at the moment for our everyday drinking wine, which, let's face it, is most of the impact? Yeah, and, and, and oh, there's part of, massive part of me that, that is in huge favour of wine through the blessed box um on a regular basis in straight perhaps straight into my veins i don't know well I'm thinking bits quite nice um but um i i, I still think you know that, that if we if we take the life cycle assessment approach then um bag in box for the majority yeah might work but i think truly um you know if we look into the future i think there's there's a huge number of pack formats um available it's a lot more diverse than um, than perhaps where we are now, perhaps more. I hear that uh, aluminium cans in the US are sort of, I want to say exploding, but I don't mean literally exploding. I mean, you know, sort of increasing in, in, in the market share. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I think it's it's a great initiative. The, the, you know, the size is smaller, which means you drink less, hopefully, unless you're open to. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I don't see any downsides to, to diversifying. I, I um, I, I think often diversifying, you know, lack or lack of harmonization can cause more problems. You know, that's why BSI exists. You know, you look at your credit card, BSI wrote the standard on all, all the, the, the information switching between different cards. Um, that's why your card will work anywhere in the world. Not that you're allowed to go anywhere at the moment. But, um, you know, the, the, I, I just don't see a downside to um, having a bit of a diversification. I, and I, I happily buy a bag in box. It's just... My local supermarket, unfortunately, has a very small selection of 
those bagging box and it's not really what I want to drink. <laughs> That's a big problem, isn't it, for lots of consumers. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Melissa.